This is Ben Guest, and this is the Benbo Podcast, where we talk about creativity, education, teaching and learning, leadership, basketball. Today we have a great conversation. I have a great conversation with Shanika Audige, who's a school leader in New Jersey. And I've known Shanika since she was a freshman in college, and she interned with me after her freshman year at the teaching program where I used to work, the Mississippi Teacher Corps. And now she's a school leader. And it's just been great to play a small part in her journey. This conversation is no holds barred, 100% honest, about what it's like to be a school leader and a leader of color today. So, ladies and gentlemen, Shanika Audish. So, Neeks, let's talk school leadership. What's that been like? Um, it's been classically a roller coaster ride, I'd say. Um, it depends on how you are trained to lead. I find that that's always going to impact your trajectory, certainly. But I would, I suspect that anyone who's just a new leader would would describe it as a, as a roller coaster. Uh, my journey to leadership was very unique, but not uncharacteristic of what would a folk of what folks would stereotype as like the classic charter school acceleration, right? And I say, you know, what folks would describe because as you know, Ben, there's like this movement now in this in the states about what is appropriate, what is good leadership, what is anti-racist leadership, what does an anti-racist school look like and and this, that, and the third. And so I, I love it. I love the accountability of it. And it's brought up a lot of ways in which in a lot of cases is the way in which we've ex- we've accelerated school leaders of color particularly may actually be really harmful. So I give that context to say that uh, I don't always, and I try to be really honest, um, describe my leadership journey in the most rosiest of ways because I was someone who was young and very earnest about wanting to lead, lead in the community that I was born in. Um, that was important to me. Many of the school leaders that I serve with are not from the city of Newark. That is to say there's only one um, out of five, excuse me, out of six. And so it was important, right? Um, but I wanted to feel prepared. And I'm not sure that I felt prepared when I when I took the seat. Um, I was I entered a principal fellowship for one year after having taught about five or six years prior. Um, and I had some leadership experience by ways of instructional leadership. So I coached teachers on my team, so on and so forth. But as you can imagine, coaching, coaching a team is very different from leading a school. And while I think my organization tried to have really a, a really clear criteria, I don't think the principal that I was, uh, that I was sort of being mentored by had a clear vision for what leadership was for her school at the time. Um, and by not having a clear vision for her school, she did not have a clear vision for me. And so I just learned, I did learn some things, but I didn't learn all the necessary things and didn't really feel like my best self. Um, and before I could really navigate that space, I was already in the pipeline and they were already in the works of removing a school leader already and their timeline accelerated and I was projected into that seat. And so mm. it was, a uh, 
I use this word a lot. I get teased, but it was a traumatic experience because I went from contemplating even if I wanted to do the second year of the fellowship because I was just so scarred from my first year to being asked to take the seat. Um, And of course, I'll do anything for our kids. Like that is also part of the conversation around anti-racism and and honestly, the exploitation, right, of Mm -hmm. leaders of color, because like we will do what we need to do for our kids in our community. Right. But there's a point where, you know, we got to be ready. We got to be trained effectively or else we're going to make a lot of mistakes, you know. So I entered. I took the seat because I thought I was doing the right thing. I, I And I mean, in hindsight, I do believe I did the right thing because things the dust has kind of settled. But uh, but I wasn't ready yet. Um, so my first year was very tumultuous. Uh, experienced a high turnover rate, which is not atypical for charter schools. But for someone like me, who's very sensitive and very serious about my work, like one would describe an artist. Um, it was important for me to change narratives. I didn't want to be the leader of a school that could fall under a stereotype. Like, oh, yeah, she has a high turnover rate at her school because all charter schools have a high turnover. You know, like mm-hmm. I wanted to come swinging like and I I'd, I'd like, quote unquote, grown up with these teachers that I was taking over the school with. I'd done professional development with them. You know, they see me. They, they respected me. But all of a sudden, when I took the seat, it was I had to learn change management, right? Like, what does it mean to take over a school that other folks are dedicated to one leader and now they're seeing a different leader with a different vision and they don't know how to deal, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was insane. (laughs) And I, you know, every time I transition, I say to folks, I have a hard transition period because the first time I ever do something, I I always take things personally. And so I felt like everybody leaving and stuff like that. I took it personally, like something was wrong with me, you know? Um, So I struggled. I struggled my first year. Um, But, you know, I'm very self-reflective. Thank goodness for just that being inherent in me, but also being a part of my organization's work. Um, And I thought a lot lot about it. And I got a lot of counsel from family and friends. And I decided not to give up. I watched other leaders and I asked questions. And and I just thought to myself, like, I got to try again, you know? And true to time, right? The second year was a little bit better, <laughs> still shaky. Um, and then this year has been the best year yet. And so, and it's crazy because it's during a pandemic. And then now I'm also about to be a mom. You know, there are a lot of things that could be considered major obstacles and, and that are causing folks to struggle. But I found that my school in particular has been able to sustain um, during the pandemic and also, my staff culture hasn't suffered. In fact, it's stronger now that my staff knows me and it, they're very excited for this new journey with me. And I'm, and that does a lot for me because I will need to leave to care for this little one shortly. And I don't want to feel like I'm abandoning my school. And they've made me feel really good about that not being the case. So, talk, talk to me about staff culture. What how do you define staff culture and what's your staff culture? What's the staff culture you want to foster? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, staff culture is gen- generally described as how one feels when they enter the workspace. Uh, so it can be, uh, I guess, evaluated, if you will, by uh, level of productivity, uh, level of collaboration, 
Um, and with collaboration comes cohesion, right? Um, it's, it's, yeah, those, those three things I think are really, really, excuse me, important because they feed off of one another. A happy teacher, uh, is happy to come in, happy to receive the feedback, happy to work harder and the kids get smarter, you know? Um, so basically, (laughs) Uh, if I could be really basic, it would it would be kind of those three things. And so, um, my my staff culture is very closely aligned to that model. Um, and I think where where folks go wrong with st- staff cultures when they try to overcomplicate those three steps, you know, um, by doing uh, this is so vague, but like by doing the most, you know, I think sometimes. Um, lack of transparency and leadership and things like that lead folks to um, not understand what it is that is required of them. Um, And when you are not transparent, it makes it seem like the collaboration stays on one level, right? So collaboration is only seen as a good thing on, you know, with their, with their colleagues, but there, there, there's also a level of feeling like, I can come to my leader with ideas and things like that. Um, and then cohesion. I think the quality of the systems that you run at your school um, and the clarity and communication around the systems that you put in place and why they're so important. I think that that is something that I've also worked really hard with my director of operations to make clear for our teachers, right? Um, change is hard, but here's why this needs to happen um, transparently. What do you think? I think that question of what do you think is important because again, um, our teachers' voices matter and they need to feel part of the process authentically. I hope that answered the question. I love the idea of measuring output as teacher happiness. Talk to me about that. This idea of a happy teacher, right? Um, It sounds so... (laughs) lofty. Uh, and I think that that's why school leaders tend to shy away from thinking about that, right? Because it's, it's so subjective. Well, you know, what one thing that will make someone happy is not the same, you know, but I do believe that there's a way that we can foster what that definition looks like collectively as a team. And so for me, I try to begin the school year by sort of having a, a meeting with my teachers to garner thoughts. And sometimes that can happen in a survey, but for me, it's it's important to get it in a in a variety of ways, whether it's in a survey or whether it's in an, an individual check-ins and then a collective whole staff meeting where we kind of synthesize what um, my results were from you know, the individual conversations. But the idea is what makes a healthy staff culture? What makes a happy teacher? And getting teacher input on that is really powerful from a whole group standpoint. So what is the baseline? And then there's an opportunity through individual check-ins to see what individual teachers need. And then you can move independently and work with those specific teachers based on what you know to be true from your check-in with them. And that's been really powerful because that allows teachers to feel an individual connection with you through rapport, right? And trust building rather than um, 
rather than, you know, uh, feeling like, oh, there's this generic way that my principal is going to approach me. My principal is this one way and I need to approach my principal this one way um, by doing the opposite, which is what I named earlier. Um, now my teachers feel more like, oh, this is what this is the standard way that Shanika will approach things. But she knows that I like or need X, Y, Z. And so I feel confident coming to her about this specific thing because she'll help me navigate safely how to get my needs individually met. And um, it's important to also be transparent about, yes, I want to differentiate and meet you where you are so that you again are happy, but there's only so much I can take or do because you don't want like everyone taking liberties, right? <laughs> you want to still have that golden standard of like, this is this is the line, right? And And how we differentiate, right? Like, it can go only go up to this point. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, like if, 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 if teachers have that understanding, it, it produces a healthier staff culture, but if you come through and you're like, this is the line and that's it period. Like there are no branches to the same pathway, then folks are not into it, you know, and over time you'll find staff culture erode in a way that is highly toxic, um, and not productive for student achievement. Talk to me about teacher surveys. What does that process look like? Yeah, um, our 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 organization does uh, a org wide one. So they they send out one to teachers, and there are questions like, um, "Can I bring my authentic self to work? How often am I praised at work?" Right. So those are some of the standard questions that our teachers experience, right, on a daily, like on a macro level, and then if in order to make it more school specific, I think we would take some of those questions and and sort of tailor them to the reality of our staff culture and our systems. So I might tweak a question like, um, can I, you know, um, can I bring my authentic self to, I might tweak it to what is your authentic self and how can you bring that to school? You, you see what I'm saying? Um, because I think sometimes when our teachers are answering these questions on a macro level, they don't even know what that looks like. They've never been asked, but yet they're being like, but yet we're being held accountable for that as leadership. You know, I'm like, sometimes I get my evaluation back and I'm like, well, of course my teachers don't feel like they could bring their authentic self because we've never talked about what that means. What does it mean to bring your authentic self to work? If If I knew what that meant to my teachers, then I would make it happen for them, you know? And so I try to take... I try to evaluate the, the the staff survey itself, and then I break it into macro components where I can build my own content knowledge about how, you know, to make this live in a school. But I, it, it, it sometimes can feel disingenuous because it might feel like I'm doing this because I want to yield a higher score ultimately, right? The next time they have to take the survey, right? That's 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 how one could perceive it. Um, and that's how it could potentially be disingenuous. But I also feel like the power in that though is uh, two things. One, it is to get really good answers to what is a really good question, honestly. Um, but like, like when I say a really good question, I mean, well, what is your authentic self at work, right? That's a really powerful question for teachers. Um, but then the second thing it does is it also allows me to think, right, and this is a space we've never been in as an organization, right? Does this actually, is this actually a fair metric to evaluate a school on, right? Like, is this something that I was even trained to do, you know? 
Um, and that is something that's also been powerful from this process because far too long we've been working in, the, in these systems that have been handed to us, right? And, and we're told to do, 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 execute, right? And it's like, we often fail. And I speak for myself, especially as a new leader, like I fail because I don't even know what these mean. You know, like I didn't, I didn't get a training on how to train, you know, how to talk about authentic authenticity in the workplace. Like that's not what I was trained to do. I was trained to coach, to have accountability conversations, right. To, you know, all of those kind of um, sterile, I would argue, um, kind of sterile aspects of leadership. Um, and, um, and then you get something like the survey that's trying to be really progressive. And then you're seeing that your leaders are scoring really low um, because we've never really actually taken the time to develop those softer skills um, around those pieces. So yes, that, uh, you know, how do you bring your authentic self is a type of question I would ask. Um, let me try to think of another question I've asked in the survey. Um, what inspires you about our school currently, right? That piece is so interesting for me to hear because oftentimes I've, I've been told as a leader, you need to be right for my bosses. You need to be inspiring. And sometimes I'm just like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? What, do, what does it mean to be inspiring? I think, you know, I think that's also very subjective. You know, I, I can be in a room full of folks who are transfixed by a speaker and I feel nothing, right? Like, I don't like, and that's real, that that should be honored, you know, like some, this didn't get my goat, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, and I feel that way about my teachers, right? I feel like sometimes I'll get random text messages and they're like, wow, that was powerful. And I'm thinking to myself, this took me like 10 minutes to prepare. I was just being real, talking about something that's like really important. You know what I mean? Versus like the meetings that I spend like hours scripting, you know, trying to get at these components that are like that we've been given, you know, um, to like what like what is a strong like inspirational staff meeting look like or sound like. Right. And I try to meet these components and I don't get the same responses when you know, folks see my vulnerability and like see me grapple in a moment, you know? That's a great point. And I say this as someone who has a PhD in educational leadership. What does inspiration even mean? And why is inspiration important, right? Do you want someone who can give a good speech or do you want someone who's competent? I value competence and capability much more than I value are you extroverted or outgoing or you can give a good speech. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes complete sense. And 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 again, right? Um what's what's more important, right? And how do you name that for for your staff as part of your vision and naming for them who you are as their leader, you know? Um because I don't need to be inspiring to everyone, but I need to be inspiring to that one person who needs inspiration, if that makes sense. Like if someone tells me in an individual check and I'm inspired by someone who is like this, that, and the third, like, then I know that when I'm speaking to this person's heart, like, you know, when I'm in a staff meeting, I'm going to call on them in this specific moment because this is something that uh, I know appeals to their heart, you know? Um, but, but that is to your point. Um, it's less this kind of overarching idea of inspiration and more of like being strategic and, and being, confident in building relationships 
Right. And that goes back to the idea of trust. And you have to have trust to have a, a culture that's working. Okay, we have to go back to something that you said earlier. It struck me like a bell when you said it, and I wrote it down. You talked about not wanting to be exploited as a leader of color. Talk to me. Um, I want to I wanna preface this by saying I assume the best <laughs> of everyone. Um, I do. I do. I do. Um, so by any chance... Anyone from my organization may hear this. <laughs> Please know. Uh, I love my job. <laughs> and um, I appreciate the journey. But um, but we are we are of a culture and we're transitioning to, to keeping it real, right? Like, I'm going to say what I need to say and you go and hear it and not be attacked, right? Not feel attacked, but accept it lovingly, right? And understand that, like, two truths can live. I can be traumatized by what was done to me in the past, but still love, right? What I do because I've healed and we've moved to a good place, right? Um, and you can also receive that, understand what was wrong, and honor the fact that we are moving in the right direction. Like those two can live simultaneously. So just want to name that disclaimer. Um, when I say exploitation of um, school leaders of color, I say, uh, I mean that, you know, um, just culturally things are different for students of color, right? The reason why teachers of color go into education is a lot more personal, you know? Um, and that's just, that's just the truth. And so I think oftentimes because, because we want to put on a certain image or something like that. Like we want our school leadership team to be like, say for example, led by someone of X of color, right? Um, we, we move very quickly to capitalize off of that, but uh, we don't necessarily have the systems in place to, to, train, um, to train teachers or teachers to become leaders, right? Um, especially in the charter school world, what you'll find is our threads of criticism that that name that there are not a lot of leaders of color in secondary leadership or even first tier leadership. Our organization fortunately has moved away from that stigma and we don't really struggle from that anymore. But, um, but there's still, there've still been some rumblings, right? That folks struggle, uh, folks of color are struggling to see a pathway. It seems like a certain type of person needs to be a leader. Someone who's like speaks a certain way, right? Someone who, follows the rules and says yes all the time. You know, that was me. I was, listen, fresh out of college when I started and um, I was being mentored by a, a principal who was, who was quickly fast-tracked as well. So I would argue she, she followed the same track. You know what I mean? It felt like a kind of, you know, who you know kind of situation. And I was lucky to like be mentored by someone who was already eyed by like our higher leadership team to become the next leader. Right. Um, and so I was, you know, mentored by her and I was terrified, you know, like I was terrified of saying the wrong thing, of doing the wrong thing. There was certainly a culture of fear, you know, um, that like, if I didn't do this the right way, I would be fired or I would be thought of as X, Y, Z. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, folks would leverage like, you know, in very subtle ways, right? Like this is so much more important because you're a person of color, you know? And so 
for me, while I was going into leadership, I was experiencing these things um, where, you know, my leaders, unlike what I'm trying to do with my teachers, they were not building rapport with me. They were not asking me to bring my authentic self. They were telling me what to do all the time. And things I was doing were not landing because they were not true to me. And I was drowning at certain points because I was making these decisions and they weren't working, you know? And I didn't feel like I had a voice to say, but wait, like, I feel like I should do it this way because this is the relationship that I have with my kids or my family, or this is just like how I feel, right? This would make me feel more confident to our earlier point, you know? Um, And uh, over time, you kind of just assimilate, you know, to that kind of culture. And that is something that's, that was highly valued. And so, you know, I was easily picked up as one of those rising leaders, you know, that would always say yes. Like, okay, if we moved Shaniki here, she's going to say yes. Right. And she's going to do everything that we told her, we tell her to do Yes. You know, um, and um, there were some really problematic conversations, really problematic things that were said to me right along this journey that even when I tried to speak out about it to my bosses, this is and I'm speaking specifically to my um, my first year as a principal fellow, like I was shut down, you know, like saying that my mindset was not aligned. You know, like by 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 speaking about my principal, I was being um, problematic. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't being a team player, right? They were using, right? Like these things that I really value, right? Against me. They were telling me my mind. Like <laughs> that's the shit that blew my mind. Excuse me, right? Like that is what blew my mind because I was completely 100% dedicated to the mission. Which in my mind, all that mattered was the kids. Like I forgot, I forgot all the thousand words of part of our mission statement, but I will never forget, right? That the that the one thing we serve, the one thing that is important here is student achievement. And that is so fragile given the like the 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 demographic that we serve, and we need to protect them. We need to like, you know what I'm saying? Like we need to elevate our children of color. Like that I knew to be true especially given my own experiences growing up as a female of color, you know? So I like, to me, it just blew my mind every single time someone said that to me. And I'm like, I'm busting my ass every day. You're telling me I'm not mission aligned, you know? And so that's when I talk about trauma, right? And the exploitation, because you use that to hurt my feelings and make me work harder because now I'm paranoid, right? Like you've shamed me, you know? And so... That's what I mean when I say this exploitation of leaders of color, because rather than you admitting that the principal that you chose, who, by the way, Ben, was a woman of color. Let's talk about it. You know what I'm saying? So rather than you admit, right, that maybe you didn't choose the right pairing because relationships matter, right? Like maybe we just don't, we're not compatible, right? Like maybe I'm just not inspired by her. Let's be real. Like you're saying, um, Rather than admit that, you know, we weren't the right partner pair, she wasn't the right mentor for me, or rather than realize, right, that she wasn't trained well to train me, 
which let's fast forward was the case because this woman is no longer even a school leader at our school anymore. Let's talk about it. You, you see what I'm saying? Like she's not even a school leader no more. Right. Like that school ended up going like struggling. It ended up struggling then, but that was my, that was my mentor. And I was the beginning stages of, of naming like, hey, this fellowship is not going well for me. And that's what I said when I went to my boss. I'm like, this doesn't feel good for me. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I know what it's supposed to be like and it doesn't feel good. And I just don't think I'm not saying like I'm, I'm inspired by, by being placed with a woman of color, but like something ain't right. And I was told in that meeting, I'm not being mindset, uh, like, you know, I'm not being mission aligned, all this stuff, you know? And I was, and I suffered in silence. I didn't say not one word after that. I kept my head down for the rest of that year. And I made a decision that I'm not, I was not going to do the fellowship year again. And it was, and it, and it was then I had gotten like, you know, when they knew up in, in the upper echelons, and again, I'm assuming with that they were, they were, they were going to have to like remove another school leader you know how it goes, right? Like I'm getting like calls and messages. Like now folks are like singing a different tune. Like we should have listened or like, you know, this, that, and the third, right? Like, and now I'm on the same team as my mentor, still traumatized. But I said, yes, you know, but I said, yes, because why would I, with it, with no one else being available to do this, why would I say no to a, a school load of kids who have no principle. Like, why would I ever do that in my city? Like, no. You know, and, and they knew I wouldn't say no. Neeks, I'm just sitting here listening to you. And what you're saying is so real and so honest. And that's what people need to hear. Lauren Hill's one of our favorite singers. And she has a line on her... Um, on her unplugged album, where she's like, fantasy is what people want, but reality is what they need. And I've known you since you were 18 years old. And to, to sit here and listen to the wisdom that you're saying, you started by saying two truths can live. Two truths can live together. And... The wisdom and profoundness in that statement, I don't have a question. I just appreciate it. No, thanks, Ben. I, no, you, I mean, you've always, you know, I'm just thinking about our relationship. Like, you have always encouraged, right, um, that authenticity in me, right? I think, you know, that you know I struggle with lying. Like, <laughs> it really bothers me, right? Um and very few folks have valued that, you know, or like at least name that as something that is a good trait of mine, you know? And I find that like over and over and over, I, I go back and I reflect on conversations and like the one thing you always, always pulled out and praised, even as a knucklehead, you know, 18 year old, right? Like you were like, man, like, even if it'll like implicate you, <laughs> You tell the truth, right? And 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 you tell it in a way that's not to harm, right? Like you just are trying to get at, like you're trying to get at 
get more at what is eating you, right? One, and that's truly why I, I often just go on these like tangents and like of truth telling, if you will, because I'm really trying to grapple with something myself. And then the second is to inspire that authenticity in others, right? Because I'm not the type of person that wants to engage in, 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 in any sort of conversation, let alone build a relationship with someone who doesn't feel like they can bring their true self to the table. You know, I just don't have time for it, you know? Um, and the pan, if anything, the pandemic has shown us, right, that life is too short for it, right? And so um, thank you. I appreciate it so much. Um, and I, and I, I really hope to to continue to be that way. I hope that my son is that way, <laughs> um, you know, because I think we have to be okay with being uncomfortable, not having all the answers um, and making mistakes, you know, and, and this is why I feel like the cancel culture is a little, it, 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 it while it was needed, it's gotten true to America, right? It's just gotten out of control. Like, like it, it just is not effective anymore because you are making accountability cruel. And that is not the point, right? The point is to, to, to encourage folks to be honest and, 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 and recognize and reflect and change. But folks are unwilling to do that if you are shaming them into it. One, or shaming them even after they try. You know, and I say that from a deeply personal p place because some of these behaviors that I, that were done to me, I unfortunately feel like I've done to others, right? But I've grown and um, my school is still standing because of it, right? This is why we've had the most successful year, even during the most hardest of times. You know, this is why I have 90%, more than 90%, but you know, I'm not trying to put all my eggs in a basket, but as it stands right now, like my staff returning. You know, like that, I'm like, it's, this is now two years in a row. Like I'm, I'm effectively realizing my dream of, of having a strong returning staff. That means something. That means something more to me, more than to me, but to my kids, they're going to see their teachers again. Their teachers are going to potentially like be there for them when they are graduating from fourth grade. Right. Like this is going to change the narrative of conversation, right? Their, their achievement is going to be so much stronger because their teachers are talking to their teachers from last year, right? And getting more insight, right? Like that is the, that is the point, you know? Um, but you can't have that if, listen, if, if I, cause they tried to cancel our school, not just our school specifically, but like, you know, our organization hard last summer. Like there was, there were, there were Instagram groups popping up out of nowhere, like just straight gunning for us, like saying crazy things about our practices. Um, and you know, to some folks, those were true. You see, you see what I'm saying? Like, I can't even be like, no, this is egregious. You know, like I would never do that. Right. But my thing is your intent, right? Like you see us now, are you proud? Or are you still bitter? Because if you're still bitter, then you ne your intention was never to hold us accountable. Your intention was to destroy our, our like our school system. 
And that to me is problematic. You don't have to go in depth, but what were the circumstances? Uh, you know, like, um, and this is true. I, I actually agree with this. Um, folks claim that like our dis our disciplinary systems and things like that. And so, and just like some of our overall structures uh, were rooted in white supremacy. Right. And as a result, right. While we recruit high numbers of, of teachers of color, we often lose the same amount, right. Because teachers of color often are not able to quote unquote, meet those expectations. And, um, and when, when the protests began, right. Um, it, it's, it sparked a wave, right? We all saw it and we all felt it. You know, folks were getting called out left and right for like problematic things. It started slowly with um, uh, politics and politicians. Then it moved towards spaces that were politicized, right? Like education, which is so freaking ironic to me because it's like, Man, we want to call out really like racist things in education. And then when you look at it on the ground, none of that shit impacts us because we don't get a say at all. I think there's this gross misconception from like, especially like our teachers and stuff like that, that like we have more say in some of the policies than we do. You know, like teacher certification, right? That is a huge barrier for teachers of color, unfortunately. And we can like, that is a whole deep conversation about why our teachers simply can't pass the praxis. And I'm talking about teachers of color. Like, there's just some sort of content gap. I mean, people can talk about the achievement gap still being real, even with the teachers that we're hiring. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But when you think about it, our teachers are struggling to pass and become certified teachers, right? And we're forced, we are forced, we are forced, I'll say that again, forced by the state to eliminate their role if they're not able to pass a dang test in about two years. When on the ground, they could be having the best impact on our kids. That's insane. I've seen it. I have it happening. In my own school, I have teachers who I think are incredible, who I've been coaching and they are doing a good job and they just cannot practice. They cannot pass this damn test. Not that they can't, they will. I have faith, right? But it's just like, they're struggling, right? To pass this standard ass test standardized and standardized test. Um, and, um, and unfortunately I'm having to have an awkward ass conversation with them about saying like, if you don't pass, I can't hire you. And it's eroding our trust. And I, and I feel terrible because it's not even me. And that's back to that issue of trust that we were talking about. If you don't have trust, you're not going anywhere. Okay. Neeks, I want to be mindful of your time. I know you're on spring break. So we both love music. You've been great over the years with fantastic music recommendations. Even gave you a shout out in one of the films I made. You were like the music advisor. I can't remember what, what the actual credit was. So what's your favorite Lauryn Hill song? Oh man, that's hard. <laughs> that's, that's condition. That's on, that's based on mood. I would say because that whole, that whole album is just bangers. You know that. Like straight up. So right now, I think just excuse me, just where I am in life, I would say to Zion right now. Hmm, that's beautiful. Beautiful. That's the perfect place to stop. Shanika, thank you for taking the time. 
Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for sharing your experience. Can't wait to do part two sooner than later. Thank you, Ben. This felt cathartic. I really appreciate you. We got some therapy in here, so that's good. Did. And I love you. Love you forever. No waxes and wanes. Oh, that love doesn't wax and wane. Love you too, Neeks. Thank you. All right. Bye. So that was my conversation with Shanika Odish. Thank you, Shanika. You can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. That's the podcast, articles, everything. Have a great day.